0: This is Disaster Tales.
1: From high above the Yuba Lake in upstate New York, we bring you Disaster Tales.
2: Disaster
1: Tales. Kate and Barb Blackie. <laughs> yeah, there we go.
0: I know we've been talking about a lot of different things, different disasters, and we are also been talking about having a live show where our listeners can come on and ask us questions and make comments and things like that. And so I'm hoping to get that set up for March, maybe, maybe, (laughs) depending on how many disasters we have between now and then, because it looks like I'm going to be going to work soon. And there's been a lot of tornadoes in the south. And they don't need me for ice in the north because they're used to that. But tornadoes in the south are something I have to go and work at. So we'll get more details out to that as soon as we can. Watch our Facebook page. Okay. We've done well with listeners, right? Our downloads are up. Yeah. Yeah, we're probably going to pass 6,000 this time. Yay! Is that about right? Yeah, it was 5,000-something before. 6,000, who knows, maybe 7,000. You guys, if you're enjoying this, let us know. You can get a hold of me at Kate at Disaster Tales and Barb at Barb at Disaster Tales and John at John at Disaster Tales. So there's all our emails. Give us a holler and let us know what you'd like to hear. But today we're going to be talking about the biggest maritime accident in the United States that you have never heard of. The Sultana disaster. You want to tell us a little bit about that, Barb?
1: Yeah, the Sultana disaster. What a horrible tragedy it was. Um, The Sultana was a 265-foot-long Mississippi wooden side-wheeler steamboat. Um, It was used to transport troops during the Civil War. It was built and uh, launched in 1863, February of 1863. It was built in Cincinnati by the John Lithaberry Shipbuilder's Company. And it was, um, for the day that it was built, it was a pretty nice and luxurious um, side-wheeler steamboat. the The ship itself, 265 foot, was about a quarter of the size of the Titanic, which killed 1,496 people. The Sultana Killed at least 600 more than that when it exploded. Right. Its capacity was 376 passengers. It had 70 staterooms, and it was a four-boiler side wheeler paddleboat.
0: Now let let's talk about those boilers for just a minute, because what they did was they used coal to heat water inside of a boiler, and then that the steam that was made was what they would use to do the mechanical action of moving the paddle wheel. And those four boilers were connected to each other. And you had to be careful not to have one boiler's water get into another boiler if they weren't the same temperature, because it would cause explosive decompression. And so um, that was pretty much kind of the question of what was happening here. But if you're not, if you're younger than we are and not familiar with boilers, <laughs> they can be very dangerous things. Right.
2: Yes, they can. The, the boilers also, because they didn't use any kind of purification system for the water that they put into the boilers, it was just river water. And so there was a great deal of mud and sediment in the boiler itself, which created an even more difficult situation because the water couldn't really move in and out because of clogging. And. The, the thickness of the of the, the water caused problems in the levels between the four, four boilers. They were to be maintained all at the same level of water at the same temperature, but sometimes one boiler would go dry because it was fogged, and when the water rushed into the other boiler, it created an explosive steam pocket, mm-hmm. and that's what happened with this particular situation. Um, the Sultana was owned by or purchased by several businessmen. Um, in 1864. One of those men was a river captain named James Cass Mason. Now, Mason was an interesting character. I've seen a picture of him, and he looked like he was quite the rogue. But he was labeled as a hot dog by his peers, because he would go up and down the river and push the boat to the point of the limits of its capacity and ability. And actually, he uh, set several speed records for moving up
1: and down the Mississippi between New Orleans and and Vicksburg, and and Illinois. Um, Hmm, That's interesting. But he didn't ever set any safety (laughs) records. Yeah, he didn't. His safety record was not good.
0: (laughs) So what exactly was it that had so many people on there? Because you had 2,100 people killed, and it's only supposed to carry 376 passengers. The thing
2: that happened was, at the end of the Civil War, the northern troops were brought back to a place called Camp Bliss or Four Mile Bridge just outside of uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi and I mean many of these people were like emaciated, they'd been in Andersonville, they'd been in uh, the other concentration camps, you know war camps and they were starving or they were sick and so, um, but the government was willing to pay to transport them back north and they would pay $5 per head for a soldier and $10 per head for an officer. And so the U.S. government had contracts or had, um, you know, liaisons, whatever you want to call them, with, with, with uh, the, the carrier uh, ship. And Colonel Reuben B. Hatch was the transportation director in the after the Civil War. But he was really not a very kind person, and he was very corrupt. And so he would make kickback deals with different, riverboat captain so that he would give them that amount of money per head and then he would take a kickback on what the person made. So it made it very lucrative to have the more people that you had on on the ship, the more money that he would make and the more kickback that he would get um, when they transported the
0: the troops. So that ship was massively overloaded and it was overloaded basically because of graft. And these were prisoners of war Right, right that had been crazy. suffering, yeah. Like you said, they've been suffering yeah. terribly. They weren't in very good shape when they got on there. And they were glad to be heading home. And the thing is,
2: J. Cass Mason was having some financial problems. So he was really anxious to make this deal because he had gambling debt that he needed to pay off. And so he made the deal with the the transportation supervisor, Mr. Hat, or Colonel Hat, and these four men had traveled all the way across the southern part of the United States in weather conditions. Because the, the incident happened in April, so they were traveling like, during the winter months, like the late winter months. Some 1,200 miles of uh, bad weather, the poor conditions, the unsanitary conditions. There was just—it was a really horrible thing. And they were going to be transported from Camp, Camp Fifth at Four Mile Bridge to. Cairo, Illinois, or Cairo, Illinois, I've heard it pronounced either way, and then they would be able to go home. So the one thing that really kept these men going was the fact that they were going home. Mm -hmm. Even the conditions that they were traveling under, even the conditions that were going to be accommodating them on that ship, they were just happy to be going home. And a lot of people reported that the spirits of the men were high, and, and people were helping each other, and it was a very uh, good camaraderie that went on between the soldiers as they were preparing. They helped each other, people who were de- debilitated and things like that. Um, they were just elated. They just wanted to go home after a long, horrible war, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what happened was, too, though, that at this time, this was around the time that uh, Abraham Lincoln was killed. He was shot, and then John Wilkes Booth was at large. And one of the reasons why this, wasn't covered as far as news reporting or any kind of a lot of historical uh, record was because of the big things that were going on in that respect. And so they had already lost over 600,000 men in the Civil War. And so another 17, 1,800, 2,100, however many, were actually killed. There was a, not a real clear accounting of that. Um, it was just like a blip on the radar. It really didn't make much of an impact because there was so much other news going on at that time. They just got pushed out of the news cycle. Right. They, they were in the back page of the news, of the newspapers because everything was, you know, catching John Wolf Booth and things like that. There was a sergeant, Thomas J. Hines, who wrote to his family on his birthday to announce that he was coming home, but he never got home because he was still, still in the disaster. So, what a, what a horrible disappointment. Captain Frederick Speed, he was a captain with the transportation group out of Camp 5th, and he was in charge of putting men onto ships to go north. Well, he would set the men up from the camp. They would put about 600 men on a rail car or on a, a railroad train. They would be transported the, to the dock. The people would be loaded onto the ship. There, there was only supposed to be two contingents of men put on that ship. There was only supposed to be about 1,800 total, which still was, I mean, about 1,200 total which was still way over capacity. But what happened was they accidentally, he missed one of the train loads, and so it ended up being over 1,800 men that were loaded mm-hmm. onto that ship. And who knows however many were picked up and brought along, along with them. There wasn't a really full accounting. But he was not aware that there had already been two train loads loaded, and so he loaded a third train load, and then they put those on the ship. So it was approximately 2,100 troops mm-hmm. that were added that were put onto the, the ship. In addition to the fact that there were 100 civilian passengers, 85 crew members, and, um, you know, they had other things loaded onto it, too. The parole prisoners were due put on the boat, but it was kind of more of a computation error that so many of them were put on in it. One of the things that happened, though, was the people who were boarding the ship, there were two other ships that were almost completely empty, sitting in dock, and as they loaded the, sh- the ship and the... The floor started to bow, and the crowding was evident. And the, the fact that it was too many people, you know, was seen by everyone. The loading captain said, "Oh, well, there's smallpox
1: on those other ships, and you can't ride on them because they wanted the money for themselves and not to give it okay." To so hold else. the phone
0: here, just a minute. So it was just- <laughs> so there was two empty ships that these guys could have been on. Yeah, but because they wanted all the money, they told the soldiers, "You can't get on right. there because there's people with smallpox on there." And so they, they lied and That's told correct. them an untruth to, make, to get them on their ship so they would get yep. more money. Right. And the ship was
2: severely overloaded. I mean, um, it, the ship was, as you said, rated for 376 passengers. It carried approximately
1: 2,137 passengers. That was mm-hmm. just true. It also carried it also 120, tons, 120 tons, tons of sugar, 90 cases. 90 cases wine, 60 to 70, <laughs> to 70 horses and a 100 hogs, the and then of course the crew's beloved mascot, mascot which was a pet alligator that lived in the box behind one of the wheelhouse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, afterwards when they had the inquiry, the chief engineer just kind of mentioned it, and I thought well, this was kind of interesting. It says they put off They put off for about four or five hours in Memphis to unload all this stuff, and he said that they unloaded 225 hogshead of sugar. Well, I didn't know what that meant, so I looked it up. A hogshead is a large cask that measures 63 to 64 gallons, and it's usually measured as carrying wine or beer, but apparently sugar is also carried in barrels that are called hogsheads. So there's an obscure fact for you. And they had hogs, and they had pig iron. There you go. So it was hoggy all around. Hogsheads, hogs, pig iron. Right. There were a bunch of pigs on that ship and not just
1: animals. (laughs) There you
0: go. (laughs) With the greed. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the
2: boilers. (laughs) What a disaster that part of the whole thing was. When the ship put out from New Orleans and arrived at Vicksburg, it was found that just before they reached Vicksburg that there was a crack or a break in the boiler. Um, The first engineer had said the boilers were in perfect condition and continued so until we were about 10 hours to run below Vicksburg. When I discovered a small leak in the Lardboard
1: boiler. And Lardboard is the port side, which would be the left side. Right. And so there was, they were made of sheets of metal. They were riveted together and they were to hold the, the pressure, the steam mm-hmm. pressure, um, which they were
2: going upriver. So there was much more, uh, much more resistance going upriver. And plus, it was also the time of of snowmelt and flooding for the Mississippi River. And so the river was very high, and it was very turbulent, and a lot of filth and things being stirred up. So that really put an extra stress on the boilers as well. Um, A few inches below the horizontal diameter of the boiler, where it was exposed to the fire. So it was in the firebox boiler edge in between the two. The outer sheet at the lap had cracked, and a little at the longitudinal seam. So the up and down seam was cracked and the crack along the horizontal portion of it, too. And two or three rivets were loo- loosened, and that's what caused the leak. So the boiler was leaking, spewing steam, presumably water, different things like that. And then from that time, when they discovered the leak, they decided to slow down a little bit and let the, the boilers rest a little bit until they could find a place where they could get them repaired. Well, the repair would have probably cost about, about three days' worth of, business, if you'd like to say it that way. And so they stopped it. Instead of fixing it correctly and putting a new sheet in and reviveting and stuff, um, Captain Mason convinced the engineer, and the engineer convinced the boiler maker that they should just patch it. And so they repaired the boiler by riveting in a patch about, about 8 inches broad and 24 inches long. The iron, which they used, was a little bulge and it was cut below the seam, and the patch was with a line of rivets at its upper end the lower edges uh and the lower edges so they patched it with just like you know sew it on your pants kind of patch but with rivets and steel according to the first
0: engineer nathan wintiger when he testified what did he say about the patch
1: he said the patch seemed to be about five sixteenths inch thick which is pretty
0: pretty yeah.
1: small um I saw the work after it was done and was
2: satisfied that it was a good job. So they did a good job of patching it, but it really shouldn't have just been patched. And he said, and I believe the boilers were just as safe then, um, before the leak, as then as from before the leak occurred. From the time of leaving Vicksburg until we reached Memphis, we carried about 135 pounds of steam. And during this time, there was not the slightest sign of giving way of the patch or leaking. So it was under a normal amount of stress. It was under a normal amount of weight and, and, and bearing on a load that was normal for that ship ship of 376 passenger capacity. The problem occurred when they overloaded the ship and continued to push it at the same rate. So the boilermakers who made the repairs recommended a full sheet repair to completely remove the sheet, put it in place, but then again it would have taken about three days and Mr. Mason did not want to lose the revenue or the thought that he might miss his opportunity to carry all those soldiers to the north. And I think in some respects, maybe he was a little bit um, maybe he was a little little bit uh, altruistic or patriotic that he wanted to help these soldiers get home but, but I really think that his motive was primarily free
0: of course, I don't know him I wasn't there but you would think that right up to the point where they started telling people there was smallpox on the empty boats. Then you kind of wonder what his motives were. Well, an interesting right. side note there. That when when Nathan Winninger gave his testimony at the inquiry, he mentioned that his second engineer that he consulted about this was Samuel Clemens. Now, you think automatically riverboat, Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. Was it Mark Twain that was on the boat? But apparently there was a second Samuel Clemens, which is why... Twain went by the name Samuel Langhorne Clemens, used his entire name. And this Samuel Clemens had actually fought in the Civil War and been wounded in the very first battle. Uh, they sent him home, he got better, and he started working on the paddleboats. So that's a weird little, weird little tidbit of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Another, <laughs> by the way.
2: <laughs> so anyway, when the, they started loading these passengers on the, on the boat, the soldiers themselves, Um, they could see that the decks were beginning to sag, and so they were propped as soldiers boarded the ship. So they could see that it was being propped up as they were getting on the ship. And then many of them them expressed that desire to go to the Pauline Carroll or the other ship that was sitting there, which I'm not sure what the name of it was. But then um, that's when the loading officer told them there were smallpox on board the other ship. The Pauline Carroll left with only 17 passengers. Mm. It could have housed at least a third of those passengers easily. And Isaac Van Nuys was a, a, uh, he was a, a, I think he was an enlisted man. Maybe he was a a sergeant in the Indiana Regiment. He said that when he watched the vehicle, watched the the vessel be loaded with all these soldiers, that he knew that the vessel was severely overloaded
0: and that the passengers were huddled together like sheep to the slaughter. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah, in the description, and I and I had to look this up in the inquest. The uh, Nathan Winiger was talking about the explosion being on the larboard side of the Texas deck. Well, I had no idea what that meant, so I started doing some research. And the larboard side, as we talked before, is the port side. So it happened on the left side, and the Texas deck was the structure that was directly below the wheelhouse. The wheelhouse was like a little, um, like a guard's kiosk and then uh, then below that was housing and it was uh, much narrower than the rest of the boat and they called that the texas deck because as near as i can find out they created that element for the steamboat the same year that texas joined the union and so they t- they called it the texas deck and i'm not real sure what the connection is there but it was it was kind of strange but that's the place where all the crew members were and uh the the front the front part was the people the officers of the boat and then the the second part was the crew members and they had a they had the back shed part of it for the uh african american workers so and they had different nicknames for that but i'm not going to put those on here but but just you know so they had they had the wealthy white folks then they had the working guys and then they had the ex slaves so and they had the
2: civilians housed in the, the state quarters, and the soldiers were just basically on the deck. The officers were placed very close to the, to the stack mm-hmm. because that gave it was warmer. And sometimes they would give up their position for somebody who was really badly injured or, or ill, but for the most part, that was the favored site, somewhere warm, and so they would put the, most of the officers in that area of the ship. Captain Mason Expressed concern as the boat debarked, so maybe he had a little tinge of conscience, or a twinge of conscience, and said he would give his share of the sultana if, if he could be sure that these men got safely to their destiny. So I think he knew what was happening.
0: Yeah, maybe a little fear, too. Yeah. I think he might he have been a little be concerned that he would end up in the water. Right, which he did, ultimately. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I think that he must have realized at some point in that whole process that he was really taking a lot of liberty with other people's lives. And maybe he had a little, you know, regret. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Well, and you'd think that when you're when you're moving a boat around like that and it's heavily overloaded, it feels different. If you're the pilot, you can feel that it's not responding the way it normally does because it's so much lower in the water, which is another reason that the um, boilers might have been exposed because it was so much lower in the water. And then right. on top of that, it's going to be real sluggish if it, if you try to turn it because it's top-heavy. And if you turn it too quickly, it's going to go from one side to the other kind of precariously. And one of the things, too,
2: that I think that was really
0: um, interesting to me
2: or something that I thought about was the fact I've been, I used to live right along the the Mississippi River. I lived near the levee, and I used to sit on the levee and watch the river go by and the force of that water moving. But this was also during a flood time. This was during the the winter Mm melt-off. And so there were trees, there was debris and logs and things from the flooding, houses. I mean, things were floating down the river, and you had all of um, this debris and this muddy turning water. I mean, it was a recipe for disaster, not just because of the overloading, but just because of the season and the way that the river was moving at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of all the way around. At Helena, Arkansas, they put in to uh, let off some. I mean, I think they took off cargo there too, but there, there was a photographer who was standing on the on the shore and wanted to get a picture. Well, the troops were informed that he was getting a picture and a lot of them moved to the rail on the starboard uh, side of the ship, and the ship almost tipped over. It oh, my gosh. So, the weight was so top-heavy. He almost capsized the boat. And so the troops were being, you know, scolded and told, move back, move back. You know, the ship mm-hmm. was leaning really heavily in the water. And so, it, you know, it could have tipped it at that point. But mm-hmm. that was the last known picture of the ship. Um, and you can look at the picture and see how overloaded. It's like standing room only body to body, all the way over, all over the deck, all over the, you know,
0: everywhere you can put a person, there's a person. We'll put that picture on our website for you. It's disastertales.com. Or I should say right. www.disastertales.com. www. W- 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 w. Okay. So the actual disaster,
2: they had put in at Helena, Arkansas. They were continuing upriver, and they had passed Memphis. And, and just after 2 a.m., um, they passed a little area called Pattison's Chicken, and it's an island, a set of small islands right along the Mississippi. And the Sultana was about seven miles north of Memphis, and the boiler, first boiler exploded, followed by two more boiler explosions, sending bodies into the air. The, the explosion could be seen from Memphis. That's how intense the fireball was when the explosion happened. Nearly 2,500 souls were trapped. Between the burning boat and the flooding river. So, the ones who were closest to the boilers, the officers, the the leaders, mm-hmm. um, they were the ones who died first because they were in close proximity. And so, what happened was there wasn't anyone to give orders or anyone to organize any kind of uh, evacuation or any kind of you know sense of you know trying to do things so that people didn't trample each other. And so, the people who to escape the it was every man for himself. Pandemonium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right, right. And it, it was not actually, because I heard a few stories about people who went back to try to help people and that they were pulling, actually members of the crew were pulling pieces of the ship apart and throwing them into the water so that people could get on those pieces of ship it, because most of them were very sick. They were emaciated. They had no body strength. The river at that time of year in April with all that flooding melt-off, it had to have been cold,
1: and so many people died of hypothermia and exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, not mention drowning. Many were burned to death. Many were, you know, burned by steam uh, or trampled. I mean, it was just like this incredible you know, mass of human people trying to get out of the way of this great, huge fireball right. and that was engulfing the, the ship. And you
0: think about something like that, and if you jump off a boat, you think, well, you could swim to the side. But because of the flooding at that point, the river was actually three quarters of a mile wide. So depending on where the boat was in the river, it was going to be a heck of a swim for you to go to the, to go to the shore. Um, And also the cold is going to make it worse. The people, the guys had been starved in those, in those prisoner of war camps. They, they were just skin and bones, most of them. And some of them were very ill still from, from being in there. And so you're throwing all these, I don't want to say decrepit, but, you know, the not healthy people compromised. Exactly, they're physically compromised. They were compromised. Right. You throw them into this cold water, and yeah. some of them had burns. And w- and actually, right here, I have a little bit of an account from one of the crewmen who was who was trapped in the debris. He had he had written about this and talked about it in the inquiry, but he said that um, he was trapped, and one of the crewmen got him out. And then he heard another man crying, please help me. And so he pulled him out, but that man had two broken legs. And so he pulled him to the side to where he could go in the water if he needed to. And then he himself jumped into the water. He grabbed a hold of a a door, a wooden door, and he was using that to try and stay afloat. And he said other people would come towards him and want to get on the door and it wouldn't hold more than like, than one person. So he was floating along and collecting boards. And whenever somebody would come close to him to want to grab the door, he would push a board toward them and say, use this. And so they would go off. And he eventually had two more guys show up there. And uh, he said that one of the things that he noticed in the water was that if you were swimming in the water, non-swimmers or poor swimmers would reach up and grab you and pull you under trying to get to the surface. And that's a real common thing for drowning victims is if you come close, they're going to grab you and push you under so that they can keep their face above water. Um, There was a lot of that, and that's one of the reasons he tried to stay off to like in a spare place, in a place that didn't have quite as many people. He said that he reported seeing a bare-chested man swimming with his chest out of the water. He was The guy was huge, apparently. He said the man was using a walking motion to stay and float. So that makes me think that he was treading water. And if he was he was so big and buoyant and so strong that he could keep not just his head out of the water, his, probably his shoulders and his chest as well. So I imagine he stayed pretty well. He floated with these other two guys. For just a little while, and then they saw that there was another boat coming, and it was the Bostonia too. During the during his testimony, he said it was he said it was the Boston, but he didn't realize that it was actually this ship. But he could see those words on the side of the boat, and they were throwing debris off for people to hang on to, and so he floated around for a while. The two other guys left him, and they got rescued, so he was sitting out here on his holding on to his door. And finally, a boat came along, and he, they didn't see him. They passed him once. But when they went back, he yelled, y- you must save me or I will die. And they heard him, and they pulled him up and got him on the boat. So that's what it was like for one of the people to get off the boat and survive. And,
2: you know, going back, I know this, this, this is something that, that, you know, I thought about, the men who came out of those prison camps were starved and they were emaciated. But the people of the South were also starving and emaciated because they had all of their supply lines cut off. And so it wasn't a, a vindicated, you know, a, a vindictive kind of we're going to starve you guys. It was just that there just was not any food available. And for the number of people that were housed in those prison camps, mm-hmm. it was it
0: was really hard for them to have enough food. Actually, I was reading about those prison camps and all of them except one, and I wish I could remember the name of it. It started with a C. They were all really, really terrible. They were terrible as concentration camps. And then they were run terribly by cruel people who were running them, except for one. And this one, the man said that he would try and treat those prisoners as best he could with whatever he could get, and more prisoners there survived because he was concerned about their welfare and tried to make sure that they got enough to eat and wasn't I don't know if the other if the other Wardens were taking kickbacks or they just wanted to punish them because they were from the other side or what. But many more people died in those other camps than did in this one, gener- this one man's camp.
1: And I know that the conditions in places like Andersonville, the people were in standing water because it was springtime and the flooding came and these people were just, they were living in standing water, like knee to waist high water. And so that in itself, you know, the, the filth and the things that come along with having that kind of filthy water, they were drinking it, they were using, you know, I mean, it was, it the conditions were absolutely for Yeah, dysentery, diphtheria. The way back
2: through, though, these men were actually treated fairly well by the, the people of the South. I think they, they just knew that it was the right thing to do. And, you know, so, um, in fact, the, the first and only... Um, a monument made to the Sultana disaster was done, done by a southern by a group of Southern people who um, commemorated it because, it, you know, it was a horrible tragedy and the government didn't recognize it and no one else really recognized it. So the Southern people did did create a monument to the Sultana survivors or the people who were killed, but uh, that was really all the recognition that it got.
0: There was also... Coming down the river, there was a theater troupe a traveling theater troupe from Chicago who showed up in that area at the time and they went ahead and held a benefit performance for so they could give money to the people and you know for their health care and and for their losses and stuff like that, just basic to feed them and get them medication or whatever that they needed. But, uh, so there was, yeah, people were absolutely appalled by the destruction and they were more than willing to pitch in and help as much as they could. Right. So the thing is, there's some, some
2: instances of people who, you know, casualties or people who lost loved ones. And one of them was a a Reverend Chester B. B. Berry. He was a, he was a, a sergeant, I believe in the military. And he, When the explosion occurred, he was hit in the head by a board, and it fractured his skull. And then he um, was able to jump onto a piece piece of debris and actually survive, but then he was taken to the hospital and treated for his injuries. Well, he later went to try to seek a disability, you know, payment from the government, some form of—they had—many of the, the survivors, they had already fought the war, they had maybe been injured in the war. They went through concentration camps and lived in horrible prison conditions. And when they were killed, you know, injured or wounded in this explosion, they, they felt like compensation was only fair because they'd already had a triple threat as far as their lives. And the government never issued anything beyond yeah disability. The, right. The government never issued anything beyond the eight dollars a month that they compensated soldiers without disability. And so these people were really marginalized, and it's it just really sad. He wrote a book called The Loss of the Salt
0: Planet and Reminisced of the Survivors. Wasn't he also declared lost in that disaster and had to prove that he was alive? Yes, he was. Yep. Or was that someone else? No, nope,
2: that was him. Yeah, he, his mother, he and his mother fought the government for, for quite some time, just trying to prove the fact that he was alive. He had been listed as lost in the explosion, but he was obviously alive um so yeah i mean it, it, he wanted to get compensation just to help pay with his for his medical bills to help the fact that he was incapacitated by this injury from the explosion and they wouldn't give him anything in addition to what that eight dollars a month you know yeah he, he went on to write a book which was reminiscences of the survivors. It's a, it's a book of the testimonies of 134 survivors from the sultana disaster and There were people who, uh, like the Pickens brothers, one brother was killed, the other brother survived. I mean, they had gone through the war. They had gone through being incarcerated in a prison camp. And then they got on the ship and then one died and the other one survived. And
0: so it was just really sad. They thought they were home free. They'd gotten through the war. They'd gotten through the prison camp. And now they were on a boat. The government's paying for it, taking me home. And then, boom. It was just like an insult to injury, you
2: know. Um, Ann Annis was a woman who had gone south to help her husband who had been injured. Um, he was recovering from injuries in the war. She had her daughter who was four years old with her. Her name was Belle. And she, when the explosion happened, they were together in a stateroom. And when they realized what was going on, they ran out of the stateroom. Her husband and Belle had grabbed a piece of wood and jumped into the water. And there wasn't enough room for her to be on it as well. And then she found something, some, some debris, and jumped in the water on the debris. But she never saw her husband and daughter again. They both succumbed to the river. She never found them. She, she went from morgue to morgue, all the way up and down to Mississippi. There were bodies washing on shore for months afterward. Um, when the when the tides
0: started to recede from the flooding, they found bodies. You know, it was it was just a horrible thing. Well, they set up four morgues in Memphis alone, didn't they? Right there was like a four block area where they had to set bodies lined up
2: mm-hmm. along the riverbank, big tobacco barns yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, that kind of going through that kind of a situation coming from being in war, to being in a concentration camp, but then in having this kind of a thing, people suffered horribly from PTSD. They were just like, couldn't even function a lot of them. And a lot mm-hmm. of them were disabled because of that. Um, there was a, a, a man named Michael Conrad who used to go visit one of his platoon buddies and, on the anniversary of the explosion. And, and every time he went, he would just cry like a baby. He just couldn't, couldn't get over it, couldn't get through it. No, you can't. So, you know, those kind of you, you see those kind of things happen. And, you know, as horrible as the disaster itself is, in the wake of that disaster, there's a horror for those people that they never
1: get through. They never get over.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes, it, nowadays it's, it's actually being treated and they treat it with several different methods, talk therapy and, and um, there's an, a therapy that engage, uses a light to engage both sides of your brain and of course medication and these people didn't have access to any of that and nobody, it seems like when you're in a disaster people want to hear the story for a little while and then they don't want to hear it anymore. And you got to tell a story enough times to get it in your head. And, and a lot of these people, they didn't want to horrify their families with the details, so they never talked about it. Right. And, you know, the thing
2: that's really sad to me, you know, I think about these poor men who, have, who did so much, much and gave so much for their, their country and to, to protect their families and to earn freedom. And then to have this kind of a, a situation where they were taken advantage of or they were used as chattel, you know, they were used to produce wealth for somebody else, and it just is so tragic and so
1: unfair, you know. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's the way our life is, our world is, you know.
0: Well, not always, but yeah. So, you want to talk about the, talk about about the Lincoln Ball? Lincoln Ball? <laughs> yeah, there's a man named William Lucanbill who was part of the. Sh- part- he was part of the crew uh and there were they had a ship's mascot which you talked about an alligator that was in this box and he went and took his bayonet and he killed the alligator and then he threw the box in the water and jumped on the box and and he and he was saved because the the box floated and the alligator didn't bite him uh later on if there's actually a really a really active group of survivors um offspring you know, that's, what's the word I'm thinking of? But um, they yeah. actually have a picture Descended. of a, Descendants, thank you. Yeah, there's a very active group of the descendants of the survivors. And they have a box that he made out of this box that the alligator was in. It was like, it's like a cigar box. And it has a carving of the alligator. And then it says William Beale And underneath the alligator, it says, Saved by a an alligator. And, that's. A, they have a museum, and we'll see if we can put a link to that on our website, too. But it's. they got a lot of interesting things there. But I thought that was kind of, when I saw the box, I thought it was really kind of interesting that he'd used the same box that he was saved on and killed the poor alligator. Right. And Who he would floated have been around in that box people?
1: for a while, too. Yeah, Right. he did. He He sailed around in that box for a little, a little while before he was rescued. Yeah, that, I mean, that was kind of an interesting story. <laughs> but the Bostonia too or the Bostonia 2, rescued mm-hmm. over 200 men. And they,
2: as you said, they were breaking up the ship, ship and throwing pieces overboard so that they would have things. The Grosbeck picked up several survivors along the river for several days. The Sultana went under for its final rest at 9.15 a.m. The boilers completely filled. The, the ship went under.
0: So the Sultana... It blew up at 2.15, and it sank at 9.15, so there was seven hours before it was completely underwater. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. People
2: along the shore could hear, like in Memphis, that people floated to Memphis downriver, and people could hear the survivors out in 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 the river saying, help me, help me. They could hear people, you know, and so they dispatched boats and different things like that to rescue people. Um, some people just clung to the debris until they washed ashore. Others clung to trees, you know, different things that were in the water. Um, so it was, it was definitely, if, if they didn't succumb to the burns, if they didn't succumb to hypothermia, and if they didn't succumb to drowning, they had a, had a chance because there were people along the river who helped pick people up and boats and things like that. They dispatched a lot of boats when they found out about the actual drowning. But it was at night and the river was flooding, and so it was. A really difficult situation all the way around. Um, so 786 survivors were rescued. That was the total that they actually plucked out of the water or that washed ashore. And then, in the next several weeks, 200 perished from their injuries, which left the death toll around 1,700 persons. But it's, it's speculative, it can be as many as 2,100 people because they didn't really
0: have a full roster the roster that they had of the actual troops that went on
1: was destroyed.
0: Because of the train, because of the, because of the extra train car, too. They didn't have all the names because right. of that. Right. But so they, so, yeah. right. so they
1: didn't have a full
0: accounting. So that was, that's the 2100. And considering the fact that there was people that had to prove they were alive, that's probably what the death toll was. Um, that was more than we died on the Titanic, like that's we right. talked about earlier. And uh, it was a ship that was one
2: fourth the size of the Titanic, carrying all those people, 2,500 people, plus all of the the cargo, so the larder, the food for the people on board. You know, the water that they needed to, you know, drink. And I mean, yeah, it it was definitely mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So it was it was a tragic thing. I mean, and and the thing is that. You know, if, if Mason had forced the the um, engineer to get the boiler repaired, if they had just fixed it, it could have been avoided. If the people were allowed to get onto the other ship, the Pauline Carroll and the, the other ship that was waiting at the dock, you know, instead of being told that they had smallpox on board because of the greed, you know, um, people would have survived and people would have had their family back home with them after this horrible war. But it was not so, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Then the government had to investigate it, right? Three times. Right. The government investigated.
2: Right. Three times. But the thing was they never were able to really pin the blame on anybody. Frederick Frederick Speed, who was the the, the accounting officer at Cap Fist, was brought up on charges. But but because he never actually put eyes on the, the boat, he was only in the camp and didn't know about the, the third railway car, those those charges were discharged or dismissed um, because he never actually saw the boat. Patch was ne- never charged. They tried to charge him um, to do a court-martial in the military, and he resigned his commission so that he wouldn't be charged or wouldn't have to stand before the review of the military court, which I think, think is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> the captain nor the engineer who proposed that the to repair the boiler face charges because both of them were killed in the explosion. So no one ever really, the blame was never really fixed on anyone. The cause that they did decide was faulty boiler pressure um, or lack of water in the boilers, and it caused a sudden surge of pressure when the water was superheated and sloshed into a hot, hot, dry boiler. The resultant increase
0: of steam pressure caused the first boiler to rupture, setting off a chain reaction. So actually, the engineer... That was what the, the final decision was. Right. The first engineer was winter and he did survive. So I'm not sure who they're talking about there, but the first engineer is the one that did the testimony and had talked to his second in engineer Samuel Clemens. So he did survive. So I'm not sure who the engineers that they said passed away. Yeah. But but he the engineer said that everything was after the patch was made cuz he had also I think recommended that it, a full repair be made. The the guy that was doing the repairs said you really need to do the whole repair, um, but the captain didn't want to stick around for three days, so um, and and you said the captain was killed in the explosion, yeah the right, which he lost because he lost his but life,
1: so there right. you go.
0: He had his main engineer. I don't know the other
2: engineer might, might have been the assistant or the second engineer, but he he talked him into telling the boilermaker not to do a full repair, so that's what anyways. Was the information that, that I saw. Um, then down the line, several years later, like 23 years later, there was a man named William Streeter who was having a discussion with a man named Robert Loud, also known as Charles Deal, who was a spy during the Civil War. And Deal, or Loud, whichever name you wanted to say, said that he sabotaged the Sultana using what's called a cold torpedo. And a coal torpedo is, was an explosive device that they used during the war to try to uh, you know, keep ships from being able to get supplies back and forth to blockade the uh, ability for troops to move and things like that. And what they did is they would either hollow out a piece of coal and fill it with um, gunpowder or TNT, or they would make a casing that looked like a piece of coal, cover it with coal dust, and fill it with gunpowder or TNT. And what would happen is they would put it into mm-hmm. the coal supply for the boiler at, at dock, not even have to be involved in the fact that it actually was going to do something down the line. And then when they shoveled it into the boiler to heat the water, that's when it exploded. So Loud or, or Dean, Deal, whichever name he went by, said that he was <laughs> the one who sabotaged Sultana and um, caused the explosion. Although there was never any real way to prove that because the ship went to the
0: bottom of the ocean, I mean bottom of the river and it was it was a deathbed confession supposedly. That would explain the confusion of the first engineer who said he didn't understand what would have caused the water to have shifted into a hot, dry boiler, because all the boilers were running. All four boilers were running. And he said the only exposure to cold water would have caused that, and he never did figure it out. So if there was was an explosive device that was shoveled into the boiler, that would definitely explain what the first engineer couldn't understand happening. That story explained what happened better than what the main what they found out in the inquiry because the first engineer <laughs> said there was no there was there was no reason for the boiler to explode it might have given way but it wouldn't have caused the other boilers to explode um right. yeah so that it, who knows maybe there was a bomb on board yeah it may have been but then too you have to figure that that the stress
2: on the boiler going up river against that that yeah. turbulent um you know Water. It may have caused stress on it, that and being so heavily loaded, and all the mud and silt that it was pulling up into the into the water. You know, it it, it really mm-hmm. is one of those situations where they weren't sure, sure if it was just him trying to, you know, make a name for himself, or if he actually did it. And he had done it in other other situations, so it is possible that he did um, sabotage the Sultana.
0: I also read that uh, that. Before this disaster, the Sultana was involved in a in a wreck he hit hit the virginia and so this boat was not without a history of um accidental whatever <laughs> wasn't without a history of accident there was a, There was a full inquiry into that too and the thing is, Mason, having the reputation that he did as being a hot dog
2: you know or you know doing taking mm-hmm. things taking risks, and things like that. There's no telling, you know, what, what might have factored into that whole situation. So, mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think, you know, the irony, the, the sad part about it, I talked about it a little bit before, was that these men had sent, spent several years and months in these prisoner war camps only to be heading home and rejoicing and happy and then to die in an explosion that was really not, there was no reason. There was no reason for those men to have to die like that. Um, Lincoln, of course, I talked mm-hmm. about that. Lincoln was assassinated and Booth or Booth was captured. And so that was really the head of the news stories, the news cycle at that time. So the Sultana was, was really delegated to the, the back burner as far as news reporting. Mm-hmm. The 1,700 deaths of these troops after fighting for their country, serving in horrible conditions, prisons and camps, only to be liberated and killed due to the incompetence, trash, of other people is the greatest tragedy of all in the situation. That is. The History Channel did a special on it, and one of the things that it said at the close of their special was "Avarice and arrogance are often the companions of disaster. And we've seen that so many times Mm -hmm. in studying disasters, that people's greed and people's arrogance that it can't happen to me.
0: The Triangle Fire? Oh yeah. The the sugar explosion? The St. Francis
1: Dam, all of those things you know, that were Just Mm -hmm. situations where, you know, know, people took risks that really weren't theirs to take. take
0: There's a group called Sultana Remembered, which is descendants of the survivors. And they were having, I think the last reunion that they had was in... 2017, they have a website called com remembered, I'm sorry, sultanaremembered.com and that has a lot of pictures and stories and uh, a lot of good information if you're interested in finding out more about this disaster. Yep.
2: This has been an interesting disaster. They all are, but, you know, there's some that kind of grab you, you know? Well, thanks. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for involving me. You're going to be on our live show, hopefully, barring a premature birth. Right.
1: (laughs) Not my own (laughs) thing. My grandchild, okay? I'm out of that business now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah,
0: me too. Way out. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, and, and so hopefully we'll have you and John, and we'll be able to talk to people that are listening directly and answer your questions and hear your stories and find out what you think so we'll talk to you next time. all right sounds great looking forward to it thank you for listening to disaster tales you can find us on itunes google play and stitcher our website is www.disastertales.com music by stephanie cerny Today's disaster tip comes from many, many disaster recovery operations. Sometimes after a home is damaged in a disaster, local contractors become extremely busy. It may be months before they have an opening to make repairs on your home. This is a time when out-of-town fly-by-night contractors will flood into an area. Unscrupulous contractors often ask for half of the money received from the insurance coverage or federal assistance to buy supplies for repairs. Afterwards, they disappear with the survivor's money. These are people who take advantage of folks who are in great need. Your best protection is knowledge. Make sure your contractor is licensed or registered and holds liability insurance. They should also have references you can check to find out what kind of job they do. Also, licensed contractors will be listed with the state licensing board. Do your homework. Check them out. Knowledge is power.